When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between, from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm host Bill Bant, along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. You want to hear my idea of poetry? Precision in life. Knowing when and how to make your move. Say your piece. Like you, the other night with me. Uh, that was poetry in motion. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1989 neo-noir thriller Sea of Love, based on the book Ladies' Man by Richard Price. Distributed by Universal Pictures, it stars Al Pacino, Ellen Barkin, and John Goodman. Directed by Harold Becker, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 53 minutes. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the early 1990s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Al Pacino gives a critically acclaimed performance in this highly charged erotic thriller. Veteran New York City police detective Frank Keller, Pacino, is a workaholic living on the edge. Joining forces with Detective Sherman Toohey, John Goodman, To track down a bizarre serial killer, he encounters a beautiful suspect, Ellen Barkin. Convinced of her innocence, Keller enters into a passionate affair, despite hard evidence linking her to the murders. Mounting suspense leads to a surprising conclusion in this stylish chiller from director Harold Becker. Sea of Love. So that was What's on the Box. Jason, quick question. On a scale of 1 to 10... How much has the song Sea of Love been in your head in the last couple of days? On a scale of 1 to 10, I would give it a 12. You can't escape it. Once you watch this movie, it's going to be a presence, a constant presence in your mind. And there's nothing you can do about it. Can't get it out. I've been banging my head against the wall repeatedly, and it still won't come out. Yes, I think every shower I've taken in the last couple of days, I start singing this song. I'm oh. glad we're finally recording this. So I can get that out of my head. Maybe this will, uh, yeah, be the solution. I hope so. All right, let's move on to earliest memories. What are your earliest memories of Sea of Love? All right, let's get into it. Sea of Love from 1989. 
Earliest memories? Well, I have to start with uh, the beautiful Ellen Barkin. You know, she was close to her mid-30s, about her mid-30s when filming this. But, of course, I was a kid around the age of 16, and with a 16-year-old perspective, I thought she was older, older than 30. I mean, just clearly an experienced woman, and when I'm that age, I just think anybody over 30 is old, and that's just how it goes. I believe I knew of her, but wasn't familiar with her previous work, so this was actually my introduction to Ellen Barkin, and an early memory is that. Well, she was quite good in this. I remember that. I recall her hard exterior being very sexy and smoking those cigarettes and being a single mother. But again, possibly hiding something, maybe a darker side or a dark past. Also an early memory. Pacino and John Goodman have great chemistry in this film. Just a wonderful camaraderie as partners. And I recall loving John Goodman. Just a lovable dude. Like you mentioned, Bill Bant, the repetitiveness of the song Sea of Love in this film, and thus the song sticking in my head is definitely an early memory. But I have to say, and I could have led with this actually as my first initial memory, Pacino and Barkin's somewhat cringeworthy and very aggressive sex scene. Ah, yeah, as a 16-year-old, I didn't know what to make of it. I thought it was hot, but then a bit confusing, too. And I knew that, well, Ellen Barkin, yeah, she's pretty hot. But again, as a 16-year-old, Pacino looked a lot older and a lot older than her, which I thought was off as if they were a bit of a mismatch. And I certainly felt like I didn't need to see this older guy being sexy or trying to be sexy. But uh, again, that was the 16-year-old me. Moving on to another earlier memory uh, one of the supporting actors in this film is the one and only Michael Rooker. My guy, Michael Rooker. Love that guy. Henry himself from Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer from 1986, a few years before this film came out. Also in 1988, he was in Eight Men Out and Mississippi Burning. Uh, he was great in that. And on this very podcast, we mentioned he had a small appearance in Above the Law. But in 1989, he was also in a movie called L.A. Takedown directed by Michael Mann, which eventually evolved into the all-time classic Heat in 1995, which ended up starring none other than Al Pacino. But finally, my earliest memory is simply that I recall really liking this film, and I remember seeing it multiple times. I saw it in the theater, and then I would see it again on Cable Watch, and it's been many years since I've seen it, uh, so I was looking forward to this revisit. How about you, Bill Bant? What are your earliest memories? So See a Love for Me it was certainly a rental, and at the time, I had seen more movies with Ellen Barkin than Al Pacino. Johnny Handsome, Diner, The Big Easy, Eddie and the Cruisers, they're all movies that Ellen Barkin had been in, but for Al Pacino, the only movie I had seen up to that point all the way through of his was author, author, and maybe a scene or two from Injustice for All. So this movie was certainly the launching point of me to go back and watch Al Pacino movies, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Godfather. The movie itself, I don't really remember that much about it. The main thing was the poster with Pacino, and he looks like he's wearing a $50 suit, and he's got his gun drawn. And I remember it was a red, reddish background, and I don't even think I realized going back and looking at it that it was like almost like a silhouette of Pacino in the 
Ellen Barkin in the background about the kiss. I knew I'd like the movie and the ending was not what you were led to believe was supposed to happen. But going back to watch this, it certainly felt like a first watch, except I kind of knew it was going to happen at the end. Very short and sweet on my uh, earliest memories there. I'm glad you brought up the poster because, yeah, that poster, you that image of Pacino kind of doing his James Bond impersonation with the gun drawn pointing out through the fourth wall, if you will. But I also had just noticed, even looking at the poster now, I don't know if I noticed this when I was younger, but that same silhouette, that kind of faint outline of Barkin and Pacino in the embrace in the background. Uh, I thought maybe when I was younger, maybe it was just like smoke or something like that. But I'm ready to get right into the initial thoughts about Sea of Love. Are we ready to go? Go for it. All right. This is our first Pacino flick. And of course, we do know he is revered as one of our greatest actors, well known for playing Michael Corleone in the Godfather films, then Dog Day Afternoon alongside the other big moody, uh, movies from the 70s. But in the 80s, he does Cruising, Author, Author, Scarface, and Revolution, and then takes four years off before doing this, Sea of Love in 89. Moving on to Ellen Barkin's 80s snapshot, she does a couple TV movies, then more notable theatrical films such as Diner, Tender Mercies, Eddie and the Cruisers, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension, The Big Easy, and Johnny Handsome. But outside of Diner, I really wasn't as familiar as you, Bill Bant, with these films, which is kind of wild. I just want to say I liked her a lot in the more recent Ocean's 13, and she's 53 years old in that, and Definitely very sexy, in my opinion. She happens to play the manager for a hotel owner played by, wait for it, Al Pacino in that movie. They had a little reunion in that particular film, Ocean's 13, which I believe is actually not that recent anymore. That's like in 2007, if I'm not mistaken. Let's get into these initial thoughts. Ellen Barkin, wow, just for me... She's sexy. She exudes that sexuality, sensuality, and sultriness. It's something in her resting expression. There's also a little danger and darkness behind the eyes. She simply has that look, and she owns it. She owns her sexuality. She has a lot of power in that. And as I said in my earliest memories, I, after watching this again, I have to agree with my earliest memories. John Goodman is so damn likable. He's just a natural. He just comes off as a great dude. I, I can't get enough of the guy. I wish it was in every scene in this movie. This film does have a great supporting cast of familiar character actors. We get Michael Rooker, of course, Richard Jenkins, and an appearance by William Hickey, as well as John Spencer playing another police captain or chief of police. Audience, listeners, bear with me now. I'm going to talk about the beginning of this film a bit just to make a point. So... Let me jump into the cold open and what happens, the, the setup of this film. We have our cold open where we get a naked guy by himself humping an empty bed. And if he's face down on an empty bed, Bill Bant, what do we get? We get some butt cheeks. That's right. We get butt cheeks. And there's a uh, unidentified subject or unsub for all of you Criminal Minds fans uh, behind this naked man who shoots him in the head. We don't know if it's a man or a woman. It's a masked subject, I believe, with the gloves on their hand with a gun and shoots this poor uh, sap in the back of the head. So we cut to Pacino's character, Detective Frank Keller. And we really establish that cop trope 
we get a 20-year veteran of the police force, and of course, he's divorced and a bad alcoholic. Then we get a couple of save-the-cat moments with Pacino's character, Frank. So we know he's an edgy veteran cop with a heart of gold. We get a moment with him letting a criminal go in front of a sting operation. Get a nice cameo, by the way, by Samuel L. Jackson in this. Very young Samuel L. Jackson. And uh, then we get another nice moment with uh, a doorman at the hotel where uh, Pacino chats him up. So we know that Frank is a good guy. While he's investigating the murder case with his fellow detective, Gruber, played by Richard Jenkins, we find out that Detective Gruber, who is in this same police squad as Frank, is now married to Frank's ex-wife, Denise. What? Awkward. Well, soon after we meet John Goodman's character, Detective Sherman Toohey. Detective Sherman. He's from a different NYPD precinct in Queens, and we understand he's got a pretty good singing voice. He does end up doing his own rendition of Sea of Love in this, which isn't half bad. Goodman says he's got a criminal case that shares some commonality with Pacino's case, and they end up thinking the killer is most likely a woman because of the fact that the victim at one crime scene was a gentleman who had put several ads in the personal section of the New York Weekly magazine. And at the other initial crime scene, there was lipstick on several uh, cigarettes, and we find out that gentleman also placed ads in the personal. So you got it? Good. All right. Now they are going to team up and pursue what they believe is a female serial killer. But the major problem here is, Bill Bant, we are 40 minutes into this so-called erotic thriller, and there's no erotic and there's no thriller. That's just my opinion. The first 40 minutes, and this is a major initial thought, are lacking a propulsiveness and a cohesiveness for me upon this rewatch. It's, it's not bad. It's not bad by any means. It's just like a stream of consciousness types type of scenes. It's just a stream of scenes. They're fine. They're just fine, but not really impactful. And I'm, we'll talk about later whether or not they serve the story at all. Finally, Ellen Barkin shows up in the 43rd minute. Thank goodness. So cutting to the chase overall, my initial thought is I was a little bit confounded by this revisit. I felt like the first 40 minutes could have been either cut down to 25 or 30 minutes and we'll maybe had a little more insight or intrigue as to the murders themselves, the investigation, putting clues together, possibly a little more tension delivered from what our bad guy or girl in this case was doing in the shadows. And I wanted to see our cops try to get in the killer's head, especially if it's a woman. Let's see these male cops try to understand the psyche of a female serial killer. And then, yes, all the while, you know, concurrently, we would have Pacino dating Barkin. That's the major through line in this film. He starts to fall for Ellen Barkin, who's a potential person of interest in this case, which complicates things. So that's good. If we had that story, along with all the murder investigation stuff, I, I just don't ever really feel like there's real stakes here. As if, I mean, we were led down this path that Ellen Barkin is supposed to be the killer. We get a little element of danger from her because she's... She's such a good actress, and yes, she's sexually aggressive, but that doesn't mean she's a killer. So we don't get enough of the other dark side of her. So what for me in this revisit was what was missing was the thrilling aspect. And a lot of great erotic thrillers there that are uh, sexy and exciting. There's most definitely the thrill of like having an affair or trying to get away with murder, and in both cases, the fear of being caught. The thrill here is supposed to be. Is Frank in real danger because Helen, Ellen Barkin, is a serial killer or isn't she? But instead, he just comes off as this drunk who's lying and can 
confused and he's kind of an asshole in the last half of the movie. And I don't know if it's that fun to watch. It's fine. It's fine. There's just not a lot of heightened tension. If the central through line is going to be the relationship between Pacino and Barkin, she's got to show up earlier in the film. And again, yeah, I just would have liked a little more detective investigation as the actual nature of the violent crimes committed. And then we see this maybe psychological deterioration element from Pacino because he's really falling for her, but he just can't trust her. So it only comes off superficially for me. It's not, we just get a lot of Pacino acting drunk. I don't mean to be harsh. I had a lot of issues with how this story was paced out, the lack of intrigue and thus lack of investment on my part. There you go. What are your initial thoughts, Bill Band? Ouch. All right. Uh, my initial thoughts. Now, you know right away what type of movie you're watching. We have the opening of the gritty streets of New York with hookers and their boobs hanging out. The slow saxophone playing in the background. We have a murder in the first scene. We meet our detective, 20 years on the job, divorced, and he has a drinking problem. So neo-noir. All this movie needs to be is in black and white. Then, like you just said, about 43 minutes into the movie... We meet Helen, our femme fatale, played by the very sexy Ellen Barkin. And the movie becomes, is she the killer? Is our detective become involved with the killer? Does he even care she could be the killer? The relationship, I agree, is very odd in this movie. I didn't see them being together at first. But as it went on, it did work for me. I thought they had good chemistry. Uh, a lot of good acting in this. This movie has a really fun cast, a lot of, hey, it's that actor in this. It's like, who do you pick when we get to it? Teaser. Really liked Pacino and Goodman together. And I forgot John Goodman was in this movie. So it was kind of a surprise when I saw him in the credits. I was pretty excited. They make a really good team. They have great chemistry. They hit it off right away. Would have loved to have seen them in another project together. I wish that had happened. Yeah. I just think they have really good balance in this movie. Pacino's a little more serious. Goodman's a little more jovial, kind of jokey. It just really worked for me. And I think that's what I liked about it. I, the chemistry of the performers in this is what sold me on this movie. So that's my initial thought. I have to agree with that for sure. And that's why I say this movie is fine. Although my initial thoughts may come off a bit harsh, they're not as harsh as they sound, meaning, or my overall take of the film isn't as harsh as those thoughts may sound, because there's definitely chemistry. And as I'm about to get into my initial favorite scenes, I agree with you, Bill, that Ellen Barkin and Al Pacino also have good chemistry in this. So if you're ready, I'm ready to get into those scenes and or moments. Yeah, let's get into our favorite scenes and moments from Sea of Love. What do you got, Jason? Absolutely. So I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to put a few scenes together and I'm just calling this Ellen Barkin's introductory scenes, or you could say Helen's introductory scenes. So at this point in the film, we know that at least three men have been shot in the back of the head by an unknown assailant and that these three men all posted personal ads that rhyme in the New York Weekly magazine. So yes, they all contained love poetry of sorts. And after Detectives Frank and Sherman place a fake personal ad in that magazine as bait, they set up a sting operation at O'Neill's restaurant to have dates with these women that respond to the ad, which would be potential suspects or people of interest, 
in order to get their fingerprints off of the glassware at the restaurant. Then they'll test to see if those fingerprints match that of the killer, which they have on file already. So the dating restaurant sting operation happens. And it's a lot of fun. And after some embarrassing dating moments and a smoke break, we see Frank go back and he's back in the restaurant entertaining these dates. It's kind of like speed dating at this restaurant, uh, trying to get the fingerprints of these women that are coming in and responding to this ad. Anyway, we finally see Ellen Barkin appear in her red leather coat sitting across from Frank, and she's pretty formidable from the get. She knows what she wants. She says, yeah, I believe in animal attraction. Love it for sight. And she decides Pacino, nah, he's not for her. And she walks out without touching anything, not leaving any fingerprints behind. And thus, they get nothing from her. And the following night, Frank is at the produce market feeling out some peaches when Helen appears again wearing her red leather jacket. And she says she doesn't believe he wrote the poem he placed in the ad in the magazine. And he admits it was a poem his mother wrote some 50 odd years ago that made his father fall in love with her. She's kind of intrigued by that. She likes that. And then Pacino takes over the scene and tells her his idea of poetry is precision in life. That was the opening quote I read. And knowing when to make your move and that she was poetry in motion the night before. All of a sudden, she's intrigued. She's in. She's into him. She asks if he still wants that happy hunting toast. And so they both go to make a phone call first before going to have drinks. And Frank calls his new partner, Sherman. And Sherman warns him not to go out with her before getting her fingerprints. She's like, wait, you mean the, the, the chick that ditched you, that had the real attitude? What are you going to do, send your dick in for prints? It's kind of funny. God, love Goodman in this. Anywho, we get the idea that she's calling her mom to keep watch over her daughter. Uh, we're about to find out, find out that Helen is a single mother. And after they both get off the phone, when Frank is about to make an excuse to cancel on Helen, uh, he asks her her name and she says, Helen, and he repeats the name and he's enamored with her. Helen, all of a sudden, he's not canceling on her. He's not going to listen to the advice of Sherman. He's going for drinks. He's He wants to see where this goes. She's just too hot. She's a cool customer. So they go to a bar and talk about past mistakes, talk about divorce. Helen says, I think that there are very few mistakes in life you can't correct if you got the guts. And he says, well, when it comes around to three in the morning, he feels like a big cat in a cage. And that's, uh, well, he's been known to do a lot of foolish things at that hour. She responds seductively. You mean like be here with me? And cut to the sex. Yeah. that's It's a few scenes that really establish the chemistry and it works for me. Barkin really lights it up. She's sultry, as I mentioned. She's smoldering. I, I'm trying to come up with other descriptors. Anywho, Pacino seems a lot more relaxed in this with her, which totally works. I mean, he he's relaxing into his character, and he's a lot more vulnerable here, which is nice. It's great. They have a nice conversation at the bar where they're both kind of, yeah, they're filling each other out a little bit, and there's some good writing, some good lines that are exchanged here. It works for me. So th that's my first grouping of favorite scenes. Good call. She is a good character. It is a good introduction. But like you said, it's way too late into the film. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because right away she's not interested at all in Frank. 
and then they just happen to meet at the outside of a store while he's picking some produce and she calls him out in the poem and i think because of the fact he's honest that no i didn't write it. it was from my mom that's what gets her interested and they go for drinks and their discussion over drinks even makes her a little bit more attracted to frank and then it's back to frank's place to have a little uh, boom boom time a little boom boom time yeah <laughs> right. haven't heard that one come out of your mouth before i gotta but, change it up yeah, i i love it i love it man Listeners, if you're not familiar with this film by any chance, what's also alluring about these scenes is that we know the cops, obviously Frank included, did not get her fingerprints. So it is possible that she may be a serial killer. So that adds a whole nother level of intrigue here. And Barkin plays it perfectly, in my opinion. She plays it to a T because she has that a mysterious quality about her. You just you're trying to get a bead on her, trying to figure out where she's coming from. Is she being totally forthright and honest? But it's too hard to tell, and you wouldn't know if after an initial meeting. You know, that's it's just first impressions here. So that's part of part of the fun, and it's it's a good idea. Like I like the concept of this movie. So we can move on to your first favorite scene, Bill Bant. Okay, so my first favorite scene in this movie is one I'm always remembered, but I actually could not remember which movie this was to. So watching this, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember the scene a lot, and I really liked it. And it is the opening scene with Frank. And Frank is introduced hosting a breakfast, supposedly for random selected contest winners to meet the New York Yankees for their eighth annual breakfast but one of the announcers says it's the third annual so we're not really sure which one it is but luckily no one picked up on it and you'll find out why in a second so frank's there at the tables and he's serving some of these people breakfast and two of the people speaking to frank mistake him for phil rizzuto and the last person that we see that enters this breakfast is samuel l jackson at this point, Frank gets up on stage and announces that there's going to be some good news and bad news at this breakfast. And Samuel Jackson does what he does best by dropping an F-bomb, stating that he wants to hear what the bad news is first. And it turns out that these contest winners, doing those little air quotes here, all have outstanding warrants and are were tricked into arriving at the breakfast and the police are here to arrest them. And this is actually based on a true life event I found out doing the research. So that was kind of neat. So after things wrap up, we have someone running down the street and Frank's out there with some of the fellow cops. And that's when you find out that Frank's been on the job for 20 years and they're questioning why he hasn't retired. But, you know, Frank's just a cop for life. And this gentleman shows up with his son and he asks if he's missed the breakfast. And Frank says to him, was your invite? The, the invite, the gentleman's name is Ernest Lee. And we find out that Ernest Lee has uh, two counts of Grand Theft Auto against him. And Frank says to Ernest, you know, the invite said you only. You're not supposed to bring someone. And Ernest is with his son. He's maybe about seven, eight years old. And he tells Frank, if I'm going to be able to see Dave Winfield, I have to bring my son to see him. So Frank looks back into the car at the fellow cops, looks back at Ernest and says, you know, party's over. Sorry, it's too late. And Ernest tries to persist that he really wants to be involved and see the Yankees. And at that point, Frank tells him, no, we're all booked up. 
pulls out his badge, flashes to him, and Ernest realizes, whew, lucky I showed up late, lucky I showed up with my kid. And Frank shoes him off, and as he's about to get in the car, he says to Ernest, catch you later. And Ernest and his son walk off, and then Frank drives off with the other officers. So always like this, just liked how they got all the criminals together with the Yankee breakfast. And then Frank shows he has a little heart by letting the one criminal go. Absolutely. It's a fun scene. And I thought I now I'm thinking I should have put it in my earliest memories because that is a memorable scene. For whatever reason, I remember when I first saw it, I was like, huh, this is a, a sting operation. They really set this up pretty well. I almost had sympathy for all of these criminals, all these guys that had outstanding warrants and all these counts against them. And yeah, that heart of gold moment with Pacino letting that gentleman go because he was there with his young son. He had sympathy for him in that brief moment. Was It's a nice moment. And I was going to ask this in my questions later on. What do you think that gentleman did after that? Because he had two counts of Grand Theft Auto. And now they know who he is. They put a face to the name. Is that guy going on the lam after that? Because they're going to, Frank literally said, as you've mentioned, he says, catch you later. <laughs> no. Now that guy in the moment gets to walk off with his son. If he's know. smart enough, yeah, I would get out of the city. I wonder what happened to that guy. What is your next favorite scene or moments? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so my next favorite scene, I'm calling the fancy schmancy shoe store. So we got a, a pretty aggressive sex scene. In this film, I'm not going to go over that right now. I'm just going to go right after this aggressive sex scene. Well, Frank now has Helen's prints on a glass, a glass she was drinking coffee out of post-coital. Well, Frank decides not to send them to the lab. And that's kind of our first hint. If the sex wasn't enough that uh, he's really into her, maybe, you know, he's just like, I don't think it's her. I don't need to send this class to the lab. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to let this one slide for the moment. So even though he has decided not to send her prints in, I think he's got some lingering questions for her. So it's also important to know here that Pacino has been using a false identity with Helen, saying that he works as a printer. So Barkin, she doesn't know that he's a cop, but Pacino knows that she manages this nice shoe store in Manhattan. Thus, he decides to drop in on her. And this is like the day after they've just met and had their intense sexual interlude. And he walks into the shoe store. She's attending to some customers and looking very sexy professional in that 80s sort of way. And she says, uh, can I help you with something, sir? And he's like, I was just in the neighborhood. I just want to talk to you. She's like, why, do you have, uh, why don't you have a seat? I'll be with you in a minute. I remember watching this as an audience member going, oh, this could be some sort of setup for a sexy scene, you know, something in public. There's people around, it could a little dangerous, and maybe she'd be reaching up his pant leg or massaging his foot or I don't know, doing trying to do something sexy while he's trying on shoes. Then he changes the line of the conversation here, and he says, I want to ask you about the people you've been seeing for the past month or so. He kind of shifts into cop mode, but she doesn't know that he's a cop. So she goes, uh, well, it's none of your business. Look, I don't sleep around. Why don't you come over later and we can talk about it? Meanwhile, two of these slick, tough guys wearing suits come into the store and rudely interrupt their conversation, asking about 
uh, some particular Italian men's boot they used to carry. And Helen says they're out of stock. And Frank looks over at these guys, not particularly happy that they interrupted their little uh, back and forth. And he locks eyes with one of these rude, tough guys. And the tough guy says, look, pal, can I help you with something or what? Then I love this moment. Pacino just gets right up and walks up to the guy and stares him down. Pacino's a little shorter in stature, as we know, but he's staring this dude down. And the guy says, come on, man, what's your problem? Pacino just stares. Doesn't say a damn word. Doesn't say anything. Then the second tough guy chimes in and says, come on, Tommy, let's blow. This guy's a cop. Well, the first tough guy spits on the floor in front of Pacino and Barkin goes to calm things down. Pacino forcefully holds her back. And that tough guy looks at Pacino and says, so like if I beat the shit out of you, I'll get nailed for assaulting a police officer, right? And once again, Pacino just stares. He's just got that cold stare, just staring right through this guy's soul, almost daring him. And the guy's like a little piece of shit. And the tough guy just walks out. Well, Helen, Ellen Barkin, is not happy. She's like, you're a cop? And then all of a sudden, this is crazy. Pacino just immediately turns it around, turns it back on her by saying, it's just too much for you. You let scum like that in here. But me being a cop, I mean, what, that's just too much in it. He shows his badge and he goes, all these people in here, they get robbed. He's basically saying that all these rich people come in here and they only look to him when they need help. And he yells and suddenly, well, I'm their daddy. Come the wet ass hour. I'm everybody's daddy. And it's really weird. It's such a weird line. Anyway, he storms out of the store and Barkin chases after him, still mad that he lied about being a cop. He explains that he lied because his previous dating experience, when he tells women that he's a cop, well, they view him as a non-person and she wouldn't have responded to his ad if she knew he were a cop. And of course, he's lying about all this, but it makes sense. It's really good. Like he's kind of being off the cuff here and she changes her tone all of a sudden. She's like, oh, so you're so you're a cop, huh? And he's like, I'm Frank. Okay, I'm just Frank. It works. He totally turns it around on her. The scene is a little weird, but Pacino has that great badass stare. He's got those eyes, man. He just goes cold. Don't want to mess with that dude. And the way he manipulates Helen in this scene is pretty crazy. Somehow he twists it. So suddenly she's okay with him admitting that he's a cop. And yet all along, she still doesn't know that she's under suspicion, that she's this person of interest in this murder case that he's investigating. He's still maintaining somewhat of a cover while being honest at the same time, sort of, and spinning things. So yeah, he's spinning a couple plates during this scene, which I liked. That was my second favorite scene. Gotcha. I still want to know what cop eyes are, though. Because that's the second time. First time was one of his dates. Right. What are cop eyes? What does that mean? I guess maybe like investigative eyes, like they're really trying to figure out something as if you're not telling them the truth or they're maybe suspicious about something. I don't know. Maybe that's what it means to have cop eyes. People that look at you that way. I don't know. Yeah, that wet ass thing. I looked that up just to (laughs) see if there's any other reference for it. So weird. And it was in the Urban Dictionary, and I don't think the context was the same. Uh Aha. I'll just leave it at that. I'll take your word for it. Frank was kind of busted, and uh, he was able to talk his way out of it. Mm -hmm. Good stuff right there. What do you got next? Yeah, for my next favorite scene, this is is a little weird. doesn't really fit the tone of the movie, but I I kind of found it funny. It's in the middle of your first favorite scene was the whole intro of Helen. And as you know, they 
they meet up again and then they're at the bar and Frank says something about foolish things at three in the morning. And Helen says, you know, like being with me. And then the next thing you know, we're back at Frank's apartment. This is right before they're about to get it on. And Helen asks if she can use the bathroom. And as she goes, she picks up her purse. And in her purse, Frank sees a gun. And of course, he was just on the phone earlier with Sherman talking about he should not be with her because she could be a suspect. And the suspect's been shooting people in the back of the head. And Frank, he freaks out a little bit. He's been drinking and he doesn't know what to do. And Helen steps into the bathroom and he just is like, oh, fuck, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. What? What? And he's kind of darting around the bedroom, looking for his gun, grabs it, gets on the other side of the bed, pointing his gun at the bathroom door. He decides that's not what he's going to do. And then he runs up to his bedroom door and he's leaning against it, which is right next to the door of the bathroom. And at this point, Helen opens the door and she's just wearing a robe. And Frank comes, literally grabs her, slams her against the wall, quickly frisks her, thinking she has the gun on her, realizes she doesn't, then opens his closet door, throws her in, slams the door, finds the gun in her bag, and realizes it's a starter pistol. It's not a gun at all. Now he's like, oh shit, I just threw this girl, I was about to... uh, have some boom boom time with in the closet. How am I going to get out of this one? Yep. So he opens the door and tries to apologize, but she's not hearing it. And she literally tries to tackle him. They fall in the bed. And then he's like, wait, wait, let me, let me just explain. I saw the gun in your bag. It just made me really nervous. You know, here in New York, a lot of stress. And he's like, feel my chest. Just feel, just feel my chest. And she does, and she realizes, okay, he seems to be telling the truth. And then they both get back up, and she quickly forgives him. And then uh, she gets totally turned on again. And all of a sudden, we have our saxophone in the background. And now Helen decides to do what Frank just did to her and throws him up against the wall and starts frisking him and says, what are you looking for? Well, Helen knows what she's found. I think you can figure out what's next. And then that leads to our our big erotic sex scene. I just found it funny because here we have a 20-year cop and just the way he freaks out, thinking he totally fucked things up by taking home a possible killer to his apartment. It's weird, but for some reason it worked for me. I love that you found that entertaining, as did I. But I had that in one of my complaints because it is kind of batshit crazy. And like you said, he's supposed to be this wily veteran. And when he sees that gun, which is just a starter pistol, fall halfway out of her purse, he just freaks the F out. He's losing his mind, just kind of running around the bedroom. So there is some levity there. It's kind of funny. I think it's a little unintentional humor there. And uh, it's a bit ridiculous, but. Then it just leads into this, yeah, crazy, chaotic sex scene, which I have to admit, watching it today was a lot more digestible, as you know, obviously as an adult. And it was a lot hotter. It was I was describing that shoe store scene when Pacino flips things around on Barkin. 
that's what happens here. Like they do it to each other within a matter of minutes where the tables just keep getting turned. So that aspect of this film and a few of the scenes throughout the film is is kind of interesting in the writing, at least. You're, it's a little unpredictable. You don't know where they're going to land and who's going to win the scene because it's a love scene, but it's a power scene at the same time. Usually it's just one or the other. Anyway, it's still an entertaining scene and Ellen Barkin's very sexy. But that initial yeah, beginning is of him being frantic is I don't know what to think. That's crazy. It's a good call, though. I understand why you chose that as a favorite scene. And I can understand why he chose it. It's a complaint. Right. <laughs> well, I, I don't have any more scenes. I just was thinking moments and I would choose any moment for the most part that John Goodman is on the screen. I, he's just wonderful. He's a delight. He just brings such a levity to it, but a, he has such a natural quality. So there's moments when, you know, he's on the phone with Frank. And he's warning her, uh, warning him against getting involved with Helen, of course. And but then making jokes, of course, too, just some dick jokes, of course, and getting prints, etc. But then even after that, there's a nice moment with Goodman. They're continuing with this sting operation at the restaurant, this kind of dating game, if you will, trying to get these women to answer to the ads and come in and leave their fingerprints on the wine glasses at the restaurant. And uh, this time, you know, like first Pacino's the guy going on the dates in the second round, it's Goodman doing it. And he's just, I don't know. He's just fun. And because of that scenario, Pacino is playing the waiter while Goodman's playing the dater and Goodman kind of shoes him away as the waiter. They're having a little fun with each other. He's just great. That's all I'll say. Do you have a, more scenes or moments, Bill Ben? Yes. So I have two oh moments uh, that I want to. <laughs> so the first one is, so they decide to do this stink where they're going to put an ad in the paper and they're going to see who responds and collect their fingerprints and hope that the same woman that killed our three victims is going to answer this ad. So it's the first night. Pacino's the one that's doing the dating and Goodman's playing the waiter who will collect the glasses to use for fingerprints. And the first woman we meet is a much older woman than Frank. So we can possibly rule her out as not being the killer and the woman seems a little embarrassed that she's much older than frank and frank's really trying to lay on the charm saying you know you're you're way more attractive than half the women here and yada 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 the woman mentions oh you know what do you what do you want to do next and Pacino's like well unfortunately i have to pick up my son in a half hour but i'll call you he doesn't say i'll call you he says we'll call you later and the woman catches on that. And she's like, we, what do you mean? We, and Frank's like, Oh, sorry. Cause of my business. I'm always saying we, 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 but I'll call you later. We'll do dinner. And the woman's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. Frank's like, no, I'll call you. I really will. And she gets up and leaves. Well, the way they have the sting operating is it's multiple dates in one night. So we see another date show up and that's the date that calls out Frank for, his cop eyes the first time that it's mentioned and then we meet helen and after the meeting with helen ends helen gets up to leave and frank looks across the restaurant and who does he see that first older woman at the bar and it's just one of those Ooh! and frank knows that she's there they make eye contact you can see she's starting to cry and she gets up and she starts walking towards frank and you're like oh shit what's about to happen but she doesn't approach him. She just leaves the bar. So you feel really bad for her. Yeah, totally. 
She's really looking for love. She doesn't realize she's a supposed suspect for a murder. And even Frank feels like shit about it. That was my first favorite O moment. My second one was it's another night of the sting and the roles are reversed. So now it's Sherman that's doing the dates and Frank's playing the waiter. And the first woman that we see at the date, her name is Gina. And we've actually met Gina earlier in the movie because kind of hit a dead end. And Frank went back to the first victim's apartment just to get the vibes of the apartment. Hopefully he can find some sort of clue. Mm-hmm. And when he's in there, he hears a knock on the door. And when he goes to answer the door, it's Gina. And Gina has balloons and she's all bubbly. And she, I guess she kind of repeats something that the first victim had written in the magazine. And Frank's still kind of confused. And he's like, who do you think I am? And she says, Jim Mackey. And then Jim Mackey's the first victim. So that's when he lets her know, unfortunately, Mackey's been murdered. And he just asks some questions. And she says, you know, she responded to the ad with a letter. And Mackey called her. And they were setting up the date. And this sparks what they should do for the sting. And unfortunately, this poem that they put in the ad worked well enough because Gina's come back. And it's kind of funny at first because she sees Frank, recognizes him right away. And she's like, oh, were you fired as a police officer? And at first, Sherman tries to play it off like, what, you're a police officer? And Frank explains to him, no, I've met Gina before. She's fine. We don't have anything to worry about her. And then that scene kind of ends. So now they're in the restaurant in the back. And Sherman's complaining about, it's like, man, it's only 8 o'clock. I'm drunk already from all these dates. I don't know how I'm going to get home. I might have to find a hotel. And when the officer says, oh, you can go to the precinct. There's a couch. And Frank's like, no, you don't have to do that. And he throws him his keys. He's like, I'm going out with Helen. I have um, a suite at a hotel set up. We're going to have a a magical night. And Sherman's like, oh, okay. You know, I'll, I'll crash at your place. So Frank and Helen go out on the date and it doesn't work out too well. So Frank decides to go back to his apartment. He's just going to go sleep on the couch. Well, when he gets to his apartment, he goes to open the door and it's chain locked and he can't get in. And Frank's like, oh shit. But luckily Sherman comes to answer the door and Sherman certainly was not expecting Frank because he's there with his gun in his hand. And he's like, Jesus, Frank, you scared the shit out of me. He's like, what are you, you know, what are you doing here? I thought you were going to the hotel. And Frank's like, oh yeah, things didn't work out. Well, all of a sudden, you can tell that Frank sees something in the apartment. And then we see what Frank sees, and it is Gina, naked. Well, I mean, she's covered up, but she's naked. And that's a moment because Sherman is married. Supposedly happily married that we've seen earlier in the movie. So Gina's surprised to see Frank, and she runs out of the apartment. And Frank (laughs) says to Sherman, do you want to go get her and Sherman's just embarrassed he feels bad it's like hey man this is the first time I've ever done this I feel really bad about it and even Frank's like should I go get her and he's like no and he can't even look at Frank right now he's just wow and then they decide just to go to bed and just put the the whole story at rest but yeah when you see Gina there and you're just like oh man that's not good that was my favorite two oh moments in the movie I love it those are great oh moments absolutely uh, we should make that a regular segment on our show for sure. Uh, starting with the first one, I definitely, you know, there were some scenes that I 
uh, didn't realize I had remembered when I was watching this movie. I was like, oh, yeah, that this happens. That's right. This this happens. And that first oh moment with the older woman that goes to the restaurant and uh, sits down opposite Frank uh, going on this faux date. I felt terrible for her. And the older experienced women, they can see right through it. If you're not being honest with them on these dates, they know right off the bat. And she does. And she's like, you're not going to call me and gets up. And then unbeknownst to him, just goes across the restaurant, sits at a table across the way or at the bar, wherever that was. But uh, when later on throughout the night after he's dated or gone on a couple, you know, sat at the same table and, and seen a couple other women and Helen leaves and we see that shot of her across the restaurant, this older woman who's devastated at this point, like, oh, this dude was just a player. He's trying to date all the women he can. And. I thought for sure when she gets up and is walking towards Frank, and I think we're meant to think this because Frank has this look on his face like, oh, my God, is she going to come at me? Is she going to make a scene? Is she going to assault me in front of everybody? What is she going to do? But she's got this tear running down her cheek and she just walks towards him and then kind of makes a quick left and turns and goes out the door. You're like, oh, crisis averted, but she's brokenhearted. I felt terrible for her. That was impactful because I remember that as a kid. That second oh moment with Sherman uh, obviously cheating on his wife with the lovely Gina. I actually liked that supporting actress in that role. She was great. And I was just like, oh, man, Goodman's so likable. That's the one moment where I was like, I mean, he's still kind of you feel for him because you're like, ah, I like this guy. And he he just made a mistake. He got a little too too drunk. And clearly something's not right with his marriage if he's fooling around and playing around uh, with Gina. But I was like, oh, man, do we even need this in this movie? What? Why? Why do we need to see this? But that was definitely like, oh, man, Sherman, we were I was all all about you. I was on your side. But anywho, uh, good, good, good calls, man. Did you have anything else for this segment? No, that was it. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We can move on to our Swiss cheese and complaints department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have bullet holes. Yes, if it doesn't have any bullet holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Jason, what do you got for Swiss cheese or complaints? 
Well, I'm going to stick with our two protagonists. Uh, well, a couple of them are guys, uh, Pacino and Goodman, because it is established in the beginning of this film, as I was breaking it down earlier in my initial thoughts, that they're from two different precincts, these detectives, Frank Keller and Sherman Tui. And then they come together to work in Manhattan on this murder investigation. And my complaint is, well, they should have been working together from the get. John Goodman and Al Pacino should have been partners from the start of this film. They didn't need to be from different precincts. They should have just had the murders happen in the same precinct or borough of New York or what have you. And so we get more with Goodman and Pacino being together as these two veteran cops that know each other like the backs of their hands and are really tight, very close brothers in arms, if you will. And it just didn't make sense for me to have them come together, not knowing one another and then sort of getting to know one another and then kind of a bit of a rushed relationship, even though because they're such good actors and have got such great chemistry, we do buy it. I do buy their relationship as partners on this investigation, but I would have liked to have seen them together in the same uh, in the same office together, working together, just knowing each other's ticks, et cetera. And maybe Pacino knows that Goodman's relationship is falling apart with his wife. And that would make more sense than later on that Goodman would even be cheating with Gina, et cetera. Just those, those little things, because it's such great casting. You have, from a cosmetic point of view, Goodman, who's huge. I don't know. How tall is John Goodman? He's got to be like close to 6'4". He's got to be up there. Oh, I don't know. I, I, he's between 6'2 and 6'4", I'm assuming. And he's a larger fellow, you know, and... Then you've got Pacino who's a little bit shorter, but edgy and uh, has got this hot temper and in the movie and they're just complete opposites and opposites attract in this situation. It's great casting to have them together. Okay. You got lightning in a bottle. Why not capitalize it? Don't have them come together 10, 20 minutes into the movie as, as from different places, but have them together from the start. That's my first complaint. That's a good one. I didn't think about it until you mentioned it and it would have sped the movie up more to have them working on this case from the get-go instead of having him partner with yeah. Richard Jenkins, which kind of leads into my big complaint about this movie is there are so many storylines that go nowhere. Sure. And one of them is that Frank's partner, I guess he's his partner, is Gruber. Frank's ex-wife is now married to Gruber. And there's a scene in the beginning when he gets drunk and he calls the house at like two in the morning and his wife's name's Denise. And there's this whole buildup about the ex-wife and that goes nowhere. And we have another moment in the movie after the first murder where they question a suspect and the suspect says, oh yeah, I saw this kid in braids that was delivering groceries run mm -hmm. out of the hotel and they kind of follow it up, but then it goes nowhere. Even Sherman's one night stand. Yep. It happens, but it doesn't really get resolved. We meet Frank's dad at one moment, and Frank's dad's the one that gives them the poem that they use in the magazine to attract the, the women for the sting. That's the last time we see him. We don't know what's going on with the two of them, what their relationship is with. It just drops. Right. Even the rest of the cops themselves. We see him a lot in the beginning in the first half of the movie, and then it just kind of becomes Sherman and Frank. Like, are these guys 
also part of the investigation? Where where did they go? What are they doing? So there's a, a lot of things in this movie that kind of get brought up and then they go nowhere. That's what really drove me up the wall. Just tie these loose strings together, please, or just cut it completely out. Fix it. Couldn't agree more. I had all of those scenes that just feel like, like I said earlier, stream of consciousness types of scenes. They're fine. You've got William Hickey playing Pacino's dad. When you cast an actor like that in that role, as an audience, you're going, oh, this must mean something. This this must serve the story somehow. That's where I get frustrated with these scenes, especially because you got these great actors that are cast in this film. And when you see these scenes, you're led down a certain path. It's as if like leading the witness, you know, when you see that in a courtroom scene, when like we're, we're being led to think something or that we're supposed to believe this means something, this particular scene. And these, they just don't, the scenes just don't mean anything. They don't push the story forward. They don't serve the story in some way. There's no callback to them. These particular scenes, as you said, Bill. So it is, it is frustrating and that's it. You covered it. You covered okay. good stuff. All right, here's a question. It could be a complaint. So why doesn't Frank, when he has the opportunity, has Helen's fingerprints, why does he just turn them in anyway? Just to rule her out. Totally. A thousand percent. I mean, does it make him feel guilty if he did it? That's what we're, again, these are these little moments that we're supposed to believe that he's starting to fall for her. But I think that's exactly right, Bill. I think he's supposed to feel as though, well... This, this wouldn't be right. If I'm going to actually now sort of see where this relationship goes, I can't be investigating her at the same time as a person of interest. But for his own safety's sake, too, I mean, it's just good police work would dictate you just send it in anyway. You have to clear her. Right. From, be, as, from being That's a suspect. weight off your shoulders then. Yeah. So why wouldn't he just do that? Yeah. Why wouldn't he send the glass into the lab for the mm-hmm. prints? Yeah. Good call, man. All right. Here's the, I, I thought of it. There's, here's another scene that just is baffling and I don't know why it's in the movie, but it's just, I'm going to bring it up because it's hilarious. Okay. So there's a, this is the scene where Goodman's character, his cop meets Pacino's cop character. And it's at this police officer event. It's the, the recognizing certain police officers for their service. And Goodman goes to approach Pacino and there's at this like, it's not like a black tie event, but there's all these cops there in suits and ties and, and such. It's a nice, you know, people, the couples are there. They're all nicely dressed. It's a nice dinner event. And for whatever reason, off to the side, there's a group of guys in a circle. And in the center of the circle is Pacino and another Asian American gentleman sparring. They're fighting for no, like fake fighting for no reason. I mean, they're like pulling their punches, but they're, they're going at it with each other in the middle of like this ballroom atmosphere and it's completely inexplicable as an audience. We're like being misled this way. Oh, we're seeing Pacino has fighting skills. He has a bit of a martial arts background or he's skilled in this certain way of combat and Goodman calls it out for a brief moment. And then we're like, Oh, when is he going to employ these skills? Where does this play? Never, not even in the final sequence. Spoiler alert when he gets into the fight with our bad person, that he's not using any special skills in that fight. <laughs> like, anyway, 
it's a ridiculous moment. I'm like, why, why do we need to see this? And why is he sparring another person in the middle of this particular event? Well, the reason he's supposed to be sparring with this gentleman is because that's supposed to come back into play later in the movie. And it does not. Right. Yeah. That's what makes it ridiculous. And even that whole banquet, because all men are being honored. No female cops whatsoever. Where's our women cops? There you go. Good call. All right. So this will be my last complaint. So I mentioned earlier that Frank's wife, Denise, left Frank for Gruber, played by uh, Richard Jenkins. And Richard Jenkins, let me tell you, he's a barrel of laughs in this movie. Why the (laughs) hell did she leave Frank for him? I can see why she left Frank. Mm -hmm. But seriously, does that make any sense to you? Not at all. No, he's pretty much a stiff. Yeah. And that's saying a lot, especially because Richard Jenkins is such an expressive, wonderful, supporting character actor. But he's just not given a lot to do here. No. Well, you brought it up already. The whole storyline doesn't belong in the movie. It's completely unnecessary. Jumping ahead and stepping on fun facts and trivia, there is a deleted scene from this movie with Denise, Frank's ex-wife, and that is played by Lorraine Bracco. And, you know, we don't see that, but it was cut for a reason because it's unnecessary. Why didn't they cut the rest of the storyline from the movie? Because Richard Jenkins is woefully underused and it doesn't make sense in the movie. And there's even a scene where Pacino's trying to apologize for being a dick to Richard Jenkins, to Gruber, because he's still jealous. He's jealous. He's like, you're sleeping with, you're now married to my ex-wife. I kind of hate you for that. I resent you for that. And he apologizes to him and then is a dick to him and then apologizes to him again. And I'm like, why are we watching this? Right. Why is Gruber accepting his apology the second time around? I'm like, Dude, I'd punch him in the face. What are you doing? Why would you why would you accept that? He's just kind of a pushover and a or a stiff or whatever. And poor Richard Jenkins just yeah, that felt uh unnecessary. Very unnecessary. All right, let's move on to hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's hey, it's an actor. All right. Who do we choose this week? This week, we chose Paul Calderon. He plays the character of Serafino, one of Pacino's fellow detectives. And I'm going straight to Paul Calderon's IMDb filmography, where this Puerto Rican American character actor started working in the mid 80s with some TV movies and series. And, well, I'm just going to jump right to his roles in Miami Vice from 1985 to 1987, where he plays the role of Nikki in season one in the episode The Home Invaders, and then Gabriel in season two. That episode was The Prodigal Son, and then he plays the role of Don Gallego in season three, the episode entitled Everybody's in Showbiz. Paul Calderon was also the dealer in Michael Jackson's music video Bad in 1987. He does a handful of movies, one of them being Penn and Teller Get Killed in 1989, as well as this, Sea of Love. After the 80s, he does one of my personal cult favorites, and that film is King of New York from 1990, starring Christopher Walken. Paul Calderon plays the role of Joey D'Alessio in that. Uh, He goes on to be in other notables, such as 
Bad Lieutenant, The Firm, Pulp Fiction, Copland, Out of Sight. He makes a bunch of Law & Order appearances as various characters on other various spinoffs of Law & Order. And most recently, he was on 30, 30 episodes of Bosch with Titus Welliver. He was just in Justified City Primeval in 2023 with Timothy Oliphant. And he's still going. Anyway, uh, here's a little trivia from IMDb. He was almost cast in the role of Jules in Pulp Fiction. He gave such a great audition that Quentin Tarantino was ready to cast him instead of Samuel L. Jackson. There's another connection there. Uh, when Jackson auditioned again and won the role, Tarantino gave Calderon the smaller role of Paul instead. So Paul Calderon is our, hey, it's that actor this week. One of our great character actors still doing it at age 64. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, Miami Vice alumni in this movie. And I thought for sure, if I was going to guess who you're going to pick, I thought you were going to go with uh, Larry Joshua. Yeah. Played Dargan, who was in one of my favorite Miami Vice episodes, Little Miss Dangerous. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. Yeah. Love me some Paul Calderon, though. Always loved him. Distinct look, distinct voice, distinct oh, yeah. delivery. Do you know he was also a, a founding member of the Touchstone Theater, the American Folk Theater, and the Labyrinth Theater Company? Wow. Yeah. There was definitely a lot of nominations for Hey, It's That Actor in this one. I yeah, love for sure. I love watching movies when I'm like, oh, we could pick him. We could pick her. We could pick him. All right, so let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Sea of Love? Not a lot out there, but we'll share what we got. Alrighty then. As uh, you said in the beginning, Bill Bantz, this was inspired by Richard Price's 1978 novel, Ladies' Man. The film does not credit the novel, Ladies' Man, as source material because the novel only shares a similar main idea while having different characters, a different plot, and a different theme. Sounds totally different. <laughs> so Al Pacino was nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture Drama at the 1990 Golden Globe Awards, but lost to Tom Cruise for Born on the Fourth of July. This is the only film Al Pacino made in the 80s that wasn't nominated for a Razzie. Oof. Yeah. Not a good decade. Yeah, in a rough 80s, for sure. Yes, he did. Ellen Barkin, in a 2011 interview with Chicago's Huffington Post, said that this movie was not her best work, didn't think director Harold Becker liked her, but this movie did make her a household name. The article states that Barkin says that she was forced into doing the sensual grocery store scene where she caresses yellow peppers while wearing little under her raincoat, other than a sly thigh to entice co-star Al Pacino. Barkin said she had a big fight with Becker over it since she really didn't want to do it. Pacino was brilliant and very generous to work with, but the reason it's hard for her to watch is when she views Sea of Love, what the audience sees as attitude on her part is really a tenseness. But through her training in method acting at the actor's studio, she made her tenseness in that scene work for her in front of the camera. It was her first role where she was cast as an object of desire. I didn't think that scene was that provocative, to be honest. The grocery store scene? Yeah. I mean, she looked good. Yeah, that's one we did not mention in our favorite scenes or complaints for any reason. It was a good scene. She comes in wearing a black overcoat, looking very sexy, and we are to understand she's not wearing very much, if anything, underneath. And she's seducing Pacino because he had called her. He wanted to see her. Pacino does reach like between her legs and, and uh, you know, then it just cuts to 
them lying in bed and we understand that they had gone right but we don't like you know see but anything. it's not no yeah. it's not gratuitous no by not any, at all by any means so yeah i agree yeah um maybe it was and it got cut i don't know right we don't know how the shooting of that scene went down exactly all right so earlier you mentioned that uh lorraine bronco was supposed to be playing al pacino's wife denise and she's completely cut from the film maybe not so supposedly there is a scene when we're supposed to see her walking out of the 27th precinct and that's at the 26 minute mark. And I did go back to watch to see, you can't tell if it's her or not. So I guess I would have to see the rest of the scene play out to make sure it was her, but that's what it says. Hmm. I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's very brief. You do see like a woman walking out, but it's a master shot. Maybe on the big screen you can see it, but even on my big screen TV, I cannot tell. All right. I'll take your word for it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, this is uh, the fourth of five cinema movie collaborations. I love that this IMDb bit says cinema movie, a little redundant. Cinema movie collaborations of Al Pacino and producer Martin Bregman. The films are Superco, Scarface, Sea of Love, Carlito's Way, and Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, working together a lot there. Well, this can't be coincidental. Al Pacino plays Frank Keller. Ellen Barkin plays Helen. So if they were to get married, her name would be Helen Keller. I'm just giving time for the audience to let that soak in. Right. <laughs> so the movie was shot from uh, May uh, 88 to September 88. And all the exteriors you see in the movie were shot in uh, New York. But anything that we see indoors was shot in Toronto, and they had to make sure that the sets matched the exterior shots from New York. So that's kind of interesting. Probably save them a little bit of change, too. Yeah. Well, they made it work. I yeah, I couldn't notice. tell. Yeah. No. Nope. According to the DVD documentary, included in the final cut of the film is a scene where Al Pacino's character gets rudely bumped into on Fifth Avenue while trying to court Ellen Barkin's character. According to director Harold Becker, this was an unscripted moment caused by a real New Yorker and not an extra. Pacino incorporates the moment into his performance and continues without missing a beat. It's great. It's great moment because you watch it's at it's kind of like the epilogue to the movie at the end when he's trying to win Helen back in a very brief period of time walking down fifth avenue and he gets nailed he's already trailing ellen barkin trying to catch up to her in this conversation literally figuratively and somebody walks by him just slams into his like shoulder and knocks him back a few steps and it's funny it's like oh wow was that choreographed well apparently not according to this uh behind the scenes information he takes an awesome hit and does not break character at all. And it really works for the scene, too, because he's almost kind of giving chase to try to talk to her to win her back. Right. And the fact that he gets knocked back and he's just afraid that that moment is going to separate them, that she's not going to talk. And he just rushes right back in and just keeps going. I'd love that, especially when I read that and, and then watched it. And I was like, damn, that's impressive. That's up there with Dustin Hoffman in the in the car from Midnight Cowboy when he almost gets run over by the taxi. I'm walking I'm here. I'm walking here. Let's move on to box office. So Sea of Love was released on September 15th, 1989 in 1,246 theaters. With an estimated budget of $19 million, it grossed $58.6 million domestically 
and $52.3 million internationally. It debuted number one at the box office, knocking off Uncle Buck's four-week reign as the top movie. Sea of Love would dip to number two for the next two weeks and would stay in the top ten for another six weeks. Sea of Love was the 22nd highest grossing movie in the United States, just behind Harlem Nights. Moving on to reviews, when growing up in the 80s, we would watch at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, hear their reviews, and watch clips of upcoming movies. Their review of Sea of Love was unanimous. Two thumbs up. Roger wasn't happy with the conclusion, but thought the movie itself was a chiller with good performances and convincing romantic chemistry between Pacino and Barkin. Gene was excited to see Pacino finally in a good role and enjoyed the relationship dynamic between Barkin and Pacino. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 75% and has an IMDb rating of 6.8. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Sea of Love? Let me begin with this, Bill Bant. Is Al Pacino's character, Detective Frank Keller, a good cop? We know that he lets the guy go in the beginning outside of that sting operation, the New York Yankees sting operation. A guy with two counts of Grand Theft Auto. Okay, we'll forgive him that one because he says, catch you later. Well, then he gets a, you know, a little drunk, more than a little drunk at a police function later on and verbally and physically assaults his fellow detective Gruber. Okay, well, we know Gruber is, well, married to Frank's ex-wife and, well, that's a problem point of contention. So maybe forgive you that a little bit, but he literally assaults him. Anyway, Then later on, he's goes to uh, John Goodman's daughter's wedding and comes up with the plan to place this fake ad in the New York Weekly magazine to lure out the killer, but realizes, well, oh, there was a third potential victim he forgot to interview. Luckily, Sherman remembers that guy's name and address. Anyway, Michael Rooker, Speaking of Michael Rooker, plays the role of Terry in this film. He plays a cable repairman. Well, he appears early in the film as a potential witness, a person that was at the location of the initial murder, then comes back again to all of a sudden report that, oh, he did see somebody run through the building who fit a certain description, and they just accept that. It's really overly and obviously suspicious for him all of a sudden to come back and be like, oh, hey, you need to go investigate this guy because that takes the attention away from whom. So I was like, when Pacino freaks out when he sees Helen's starter pistol, we talked about that already. And of course, yes, the fact that he doesn't turn in Helen's glass with the fingerprints on it. Not a good look overall for a veteran cop, in my opinion. Is Frank a good cop? I think he's a good cop, just a bad person. Well, <laughs> a flawed person. I wouldn't say a bad person. He's a flawed person. All right. I mean, he did 20 years in the force. Most of the people in the precinct seem to like him, respect him. Eh, just getting tired, making mistakes. Yeah, he's going through a rough patch, and he's finally maybe found somebody he can really fall in love with. And so we forgive him. Some, he's blinded by love. Yes, not one of his better cases. Right. What do you have for some questions or thoughts? What are you thinking? This is a question. No, it's not a serious one. But I want to know the story behind Frank's shower curtain. <laughs> That's great. Yes. It's a bunch of illustrated alligators hanging right. by a pool. Some of them are dressed in tuxes, like in a band. And then some of them are just literally swimming in a pool. It's wild, man. It's like it's a child's shower curtain. I, just, I want another story behind it. Right. I, because you're going, wait, 
could he not afford a different one? Did that come with the shower uh, or come with the apartment or did he have kids with his ex-wife, Denise? I don't think so. I don't know. Um, Does he have a thing for alligators? It was one of those I had to do a double take. I was like, wait, wait, what? It stands out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for a second, because there's a scene where he's in the shower and he pulls the curtain and it's like, wait, is he at his place? Maybe he's at Helen's place and it's the daughter's. I'm like, nope, because when you watch the the boom boom scene, yeah, you see it in the background, (laughs) the bathroom. So (laughs) it's his shower curtain. Um, I just want to know. I want to know the story behind it. Yeah, me too now. I'm glad you called that out. That was lurking somewhere in the back of my mind. Let's talk about boom boom Ellen Barkin. Okay. Uh, She's got what I called a resting sexy face. It's just, she's always looks sexy to me. She always has that face. Anyway, can you think of another actress that exudes sultry and seductive as she does? Uh, I have someone in mind. Is there another actress that just has that look? I don't know. I always kind of equate it to her because yeah, I, I don't necessarily find her attractive. I just find her sexy, which is, I don't know if that a contradiction. No, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Maybe not like traditionally, or what our society views as quote unquote hot or like a supermodel hot or something like that. But she just has a way that she carries herself in a certain way. And she is, uh, I think she's very attractive, but I mean, anyway, I, I think I know what you're saying, but there are the, some actresses just, they wear a certain look. That's just, it is their look. And for me, the one that stands out is Gina Gershon. That's oh, yeah. She just, you look at her and she's, just like oh that woman is sexy (laughs) that's a good one and i I think she's super hot too but still looks great oh you know what else i think you can pull that one off is uh linda fiorentino oh sure great call that's what i'm talking about bill bant there we go nailed it exactly that's exactly what i'm talking about just that smoldering kind of voice helps too oh yeah sure just got the voice to match Let's keep it rolling. Did you? I have more. I have just a couple more questions or thoughts. What? What else? Do you, what else do you got here? Okay. The the obvious one is uh, favorite Al Pacino movie, and we've kind of established it's probably not going to be from the eighties. Correct. Unless you're a former Hurricanes football player from the nineties, because then it would be Scarface. But since we either of us didn't play football for the Hurricanes, <laughs> this is true. That's not going to be our favorite movie. That used to crack me up all the time in the newspaper. They would have they would interview a player, and then they do like. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite food? And every player would put down Scarface. Oh, man, that's great. Too funny. Uh, My favorite Al Pacino film. First, I'm going to separate it into two different categories, meaning early Pacino and later Pacino. The early Pacino being uh, 70s and then later 90s beyond, where he takes on a, a bit of a different persona, a different acting style, if you will. He's known for being over top, over the top, but also very entertaining. He owns that and it works. He makes it work in those films. So for a lot of fans of his, it may be a matter of taste. Your mileage may vary as to what your preferences and what your idea of good acting is. But I think he's brilliant in both versions of himself as an actor. Anywho, early acting career, I'm going with The Godfather 2. I think he's absolutely brilliant in that. I mean, just no questions asked. Fredo, I miss you. And later on, it's tough, man, but I love him in Heat. I do love him in Heat. He's so, so above and beyond. I think if I had to choose, if you twisted my arm, I'd go with Godfather 2. How about you, Bill Bant? I think I would go with Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, that's it's hard to argue that, too. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. 
We got a little uh, Chris Sarandon in that one, too. Right? Yeah. He's wonderful as well. That's right. Oscar winner, Chris Sarandon. Awesome. All right. Here's a question, Bill Bant. Yes. We talked about Sea of Love getting stuck in our head. Are there any other songs you can think of off the top of your head that were just like that when you hear it? Well, you just can't get rid of it. It's going to be there in your noggin. Definitely a movie we've done this past year, uh, part of our Summer of the Cinema series, Stand By Me. I mean, I was singing that one all week. Sure. Another oldie. That episode. Yeah. yeah, it always seems to be the, the oldies. That well, very, they can be very catchy. Yeah. Yeah. Those ones, I don't, it's annoying because they, they get stuck in your head, but at least they're good songs. Correct. In my opinion. But one that band that came to mind was Smash Mouth. And uh, R.I.P. lead singer Steve Harwell. But Smash Mouth had some of those songs. Yes, they did. It's like All Star. Like those. It's just like, oof. If I hear it, oh, man. It's so stuck in my head that it almost just then translates into me singing it out loud. And then I just have to yell at myself for doing so. Right. Yeah. And their cover of the monkeys. I'm a believer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yep, that's a good one. Those certainly stick in your head for a while. Hey, man, this movie had some nostalgia for me because it does feature 45 records, the smaller records. And I was wondering if you could recall to your childhood some of your favorite 45s that you may have owned and played. You know, it's funny. I was thinking about that, too. Like, my dad definitely had a bunch of those. Might still have them. I don't know. But for me, the 45s are always the storybook ones. You know, turn the page when you hear. Absolutely. And it was always, you know, the Star Wars, Indiana Jones. Yeah. That was the ones that I kind of had. Or was the 33s. It was one of those two. And that's really the small ones that I had. I didn't really buy them for singles. Mm. Yeah, we had a bunch of them in my household. And my favorite one happened to be Purple Rain, Prince's Purple Rain, because it was actually purple. The 45 oh, cool. was, yeah, the color was like a light purple. It was really cool. I just thought that was cool. It was like, how did they make this purple? How did they do that? Yeah. And I always remember playing ad nauseum, the 45 of Betty Davis eyes, the Kim Carnes song. Love that tune. Still wow. love that song to this day. Yeah. Remember we had that 45, but yeah, I love those read a lot. The records with the, he had the booklet in the pocket. The oh, yeah. In it. Yeah. Good stuff, man. All right. Um, so here's my question. This is actually deals with the movie and somewhat serious. So did you feel disappointed or slighted by the ending? So finding out who the killer was, because we really. It's funny because I was about to say that we have done a good job by not spoiling the ending of this movie to this right. point. We have not revealed who the killer is. I'm going to do it. It's Michael Rooker. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Michael Rooker, who plays Terry who we then find out at the very, very end in like one line of dialogue from Helen, Ellen Barkin's character, that he is her ex-husband. Right. That's been following her around as she was going on her dates with these gentlemen. After she would leave from this gentleman's apartment after the date or whatever, then Michael Rooker would kill that guy. Yeah. So did you find it disappointing? Oh, yeah. To answer your question, <laughs> that's the whole yeah. point of this, right? You know, I did. Unfortunately, upon this rewatch, I remember liking that twist when I saw it when I was younger, but I'm just watching this with a little bit more of an expectation or analytical mind. And that's just the bottom line. I, I you know, and I almost hate myself for that or because I just wish I could look at this as a bit just from an entertaining point of view. That's all. 
But I was like, ah, it just feels like it comes out of left field a bit, little bit. And it's not satisfactory as far as a, even a fight sequence goes. The choreography is just okay. You know, we don't get to see Pacino using his special fighting skills that we saw him put on display earlier in the film. And yeah, so it's like, oh, it's that guy that we saw for two brief scenes way before in the movie and who was really suspicious in the second scene in particular. So I was like, okay, that's fine. I had no investment in that character, nor did I. It's a very simple motivation that he had. And it's like, okay, so it's not Ellen Barkin. It's this dude. It's her ex-husband. Uh, not totally surprised. Anyway, what are your what are your thoughts? I got a follow-up question about that. Do you think it would have worked better if we didn't see Michael Rooker until the end? And it's more of she's she just keeps talking about her ex-husband and mm-hmm. so it would have been really out of the blue then. Like completely. Correct. Instead of kind of throwing in a random character and then what? That random character is the murderer? I don't know. I honestly don't know if that would have worked for me. Okay. I'm trying to think if if it would have worked had he been more involved, not just as a side character, but someone that is in a, at least, let's say, two more scenes in the film where we understand maybe his involvement and connection with her, but it just seems that he is benign, like some sort of character that just wouldn't harm a fly. But uh, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe uh, Maybe a listener can write in to us and let us know a better version of that. Unless they feel, you know, there's probably plenty of people have found it plenty impactful. The twist at the end. Mm. See, what's missing for me is the psychological thriller aspect of this, because we know that the through line, the central through line is this relationship between Pacino and Barkin. And is she or is she not is the question. Is she the killer or is she not? But we don't get the real investigative side of things, the cop side of things in this as to the motivation of the killer and how like the bodies were placed on the bed and what the killer what trying to get into the killer's mind or psyche. It's just assumed that it's she's this crazed killer, that it's a female, first of all, it's assumed, and then that she's just seeking revenge. She's a man hater. Yeah. That was missing for me. Yeah, I just couldn't buy it that a single mom would go around killing guys. Not saying that it couldn't happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Seems more like a stretch to me. All right. Well, I've got one little more bit of business to take care of because okay, we do get this relationship between Pacino and Barkin, and she's playing this single mother. And this is a shout out to all the single mothers out there. I'm calling this Dating Corner with Jason. Mm-hmm. And I have a little experience uh, dating a single mother. And I'm going to say this right now. If you're a man that doesn't have kids and has never been married, you probably think you know what you're getting into when dating a single mom. But uh, trust me, you don't. You do not. So whatever you do, start with an immense respect and admiration for the woman, her child, and for where she's been and what she's doing in raising that child. And then go as slow as possible and listen and learn to that single mother. She is a survivor and you're going to have to deal with that on a few different levels and that's going to affect your ego. So try to prepare yourself. And no matter what I say, you know, just be sensitive, be respectful, be careful. And I am speaking to the guy here. You have to, you gotta be honest with yourself and what you really want from this woman and be honest with her, what you're ready for in a relationship. That's all. That's Dating Corner with Jason. Respect the single mom. Dropping two new segments on this show now. Love it. 
Let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five, 45s, what do you give Sea of Love? Oh, wow. You know, I know I was a little bit harsh on this. A little bit? Uh, yeah, I'm going to stick to my guns. And I'm going to go with uh, 2.545 records on this. This because it's really right down the middle for me. It's just fine. It's not bad. It's not good. It It's just fine. It's okay. The first 43 minutes are just a string of scenes that move along in an unimpressive way. The movie just doesn't really pick up or have any spark until Ellen Barkin arrives on the scene. She's great. By the time things start getting heated up, there's only 50 minutes left in the movie and there are some sexy moments, but it's strange. It feels as if there should be something more if we're meant to think there's something more to this, but I'm not sure that there's that much going on. Al Pacino's character really doesn't come off that well upon this viewing for me. That's my opinion. I don't know how likable he is. He's very drunk throughout the second half of the movie. There's just not a lot of thrill in it. I'm not sure the cops are great at the job. You know, they don't even solve the crime. They just get lucky that Frank ends up getting attacked by Terry, a.k.a. Michael Rooker at the end, finding out that Rooker is the real doer, as they say in this movie. He's the doer. And yeah, that epilogue at the end doesn't make sense, what I'm calling the epilogue, where Frank is trying to get Helen back. How much time has like, transpired at this point? Then she kind of does. I'm not sure if she would take him back. I get a little confused. It was okay. So I'm giving a thumbs up for Ellen Barkin's performance, a thumbs up for an extremely likable Goodman, and a thumbs up for the relationships, you know, the chemistry between Goodman and Pacino and Barkman. But for the thriller aspect of the story, it's a thumbs down. So overall, I give it a 2.5. 2.545 records for me. What say you, Bill Band? All right, I'm going to give it 345s, and mostly for what you said there at the end. The performances by Barkin, Pacino, and Goodman, and just the chemistry with all those characters. That's what kept me watching the movie. Yes, there's a ton of storylines that go nowhere, but the main case itself kept me interested enough that, yeah, I'll give it a three, a decent three. I hear you, Bill Banton. I could be tempted. I could be tempted to bump my, I may, you know, in the future, bump my score up to a three. I, I was playing it back, the movie that is just before recording and like the, the dating sting operation. There's some fun stuff in there. Yes. So there's some interesting things. I, I could be tempted. I may have to think about that. Good stuff, man. That was fun. All right. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. If you have any comments, questions, or recipes to share, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. We are down to our final four episodes of season three. Jason, where has the time gone? I know. Everyone, have an excellent Thanksgiving holiday. We are thankful for welcoming us into your homes, car, work, or wherever you listen to our show. We appreciate it deeply. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. You like the park and I like the beach. You like movies, I like plays. You're a printer, I manage a shoe store. And I don't believe in wasting time on this kind of stuff. You know what you know and you go with it. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.